Sound Design. Live. Hey everyone, this is an interview that I recorded with Bob McCarthy last year, but I only sent it out to my mailing list. So now I'm re-releasing it to the podcast, and if you're looking for any of the images and videos that we talk about, you can find them at sounddesignlive.com by searching for Bob McCarthy Small Rooms Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today, my guest is Bob McCarthy. He is the author of Sound Systems Design and Optimization, as well as the foreword for my book called Sound Design Live. He is also the director of system optimization at Meyer Sound and will be honored with distinguished achievement at this year's USITT conference in Fort Worth. So I wanted to get Bob back on the show because after our first interview, I got some questions from listeners who were having a hard time applying the principles of system design that they have learned from his book and my site to their projects. Or it's not so much that they are having a hard time as wanting to know if they are right, doing the right thing. And I can totally relate because there are hundreds of different decisions to make when setting up a sound system. And it can be hard to value each option and we might not have time or resources to really go through and test each one. So Bob McCarthy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Nathan. We're gonna talk about these questions and designs that people sent to me, but I have two things to ask you before that. First of all, what have you been up to recently? Having fun with um, a outdoor system of uh, on a scoreboard at Louisville Cardinal Stadium in Louisville, Kentucky, um, battling 20-knot winds. But uh, the second day of our tuning, the, the uh, sun came out and we were able to get uh, a good look at it. It's really difficult uh, to get any data at... Uh, 600 feet away in uh, <laughs> in windy conditions, you know. And, uh, is that because the speakers are moving around or because the w- the effect that the wind has on the transmission of sound between the speaker and where you are? The speakers were quite rigid. They're very well uh, installed and so they're totally rigid, but literally the sound is, uh, is being uh, heavily channeled uh, it's as if the speakers are on a spinning turntable, uh, and it's quite it's quite the experience. Wow! So basically, you just had to wait for the wind to stop. Yeah, and what we did was in the in the during the time period of the wind, you you work on the things that you can see with your eyes, and uh, one of those being the very substantial I beam blocking the bottom two speakers out of eight. So uh, you. You busy yourself with remedying that because you know the wind or no wind, that's uh, not going to be a good, a good thing. Um, and I guess I've always kind of wondered about measuring in the wind because I've never had to do it myself. I mainly work inside, but I've been to plenty of music festivals, including uh, the hardly strictly bluegrass that happens here in Golden Gate Park. And mm-hmm. almost every stage is windy, except for one of them that's sort of protected from the wind because it's near the ocean, it's Golden Gate Park, there's lots of wind, there's fog rolling in. This, this, I'm sure this could be a whole separate conversation, but just out of curiosity, 
are there methods for approaching measurement in the wind? What the the approach that you have to take is to is to look at long term trends, whereas you can take a picture in indoor spaces and you could you could pause your analyzer and and have a pretty good idea that that picture would reappear on the screen if you if you flushed out your averager and did it again, uh, and it will. Um, but the thing is that outdoors, you just sit and you just take picture after picture after picture after picture, and then you lay them over and see where the trends are. Because uh, and you just have to throw out uh, certain ones and say, okay, you're not plausible. So you're really working statistically rather than having a stable um uh, a normal stable type of uh, response. Okay, that makes sense. Here's the last thing that I want to bring up before we get started. The most common reason that people write to me is that they want to tell their story to someone who will understand. They reach out to make a connection with someone sympathetic, that person being me. Um, So I've been trying to figure out how to help unite all of the people out there like you and like me who are doing what they can to safely deliver waveforms from source to destination. How can we recognize this small group of people scattered around the world who are changing the way they work, using what we know about the physics of sound to produce better live events and better listening experiences everywhere? I feel like it's a big challenge. Um, Some people who write to me feel like they're the only ones who care about this kind of stuff. So a reader, Goran from Croatia, just wrote me. um, He said, to be honest, there are not a lot of people here that see the importance of a good scientific approach in sound reinforcement setup. So it's a very common example to go to a concert and cry, not because of a sad song, but because of hearing damage. I think we all feel that way sometimes. It's kind of funny, but kind of sad. It's easy to get pissed off when things aren't done right and it sounds bad, or at least that's our perception. So the first thing I want to say is that you are not alone, you people who feel this way, like me sometimes, and that your work is significant, even if it doesn't feel that way. Uh, We can't change the world by complaining, but we can change how we do our own work, creating better listening experiences and influencing the people that we work with. The second thing I think we can do is create a bat signal or like a secret handshake to identify each other out there. To that effect, I am going to read you, Bob, a few hashtags and you tell me what resonates with you and we will see if we can create something that'll catch on. First of all, do you know what a hashtag is? Vaguely. It has something to do with Twitter, which I never use. That's fine. And it is crossed over into some other social places, um social networks, and blog posts and things like that. So I'll just tell you, it, uh, a hashtag is a word or phrase used to identify a theme and organize a conversation. So for example, one of the highest trending hashtags on Twitter right now is MH370, used to identify tweets about flight MH370 that was lost in the southern Indian Ocean. So we want to be able to identify each other. I would like to be able to do a search, for example, of all tweets about sound system design from people who listen to sound design live who are using a more scientific approach, who care about the delivery of waveforms to your ears and things like that. So I've created this list 
um, of things that I think we should try out. So I'm just going to read them to you first and you tell me if anything catches your ear without me explaining it to you. Um, so we have hashtag DBSPL, hashtag midwave, hashtag all your waves, hashtag safe wave, hashtag phase 360, hashtag XOVR, hashtag wave RX. Okay. Are you impressed by any of those? Well, um, uh, number six, hashtag XOVR, is quite familiar to me. That's a acronym for crossover, which I regularly use in all of my writings. Yes, I got that from your book. Um, and um, phase 360, of course, uh, it, I can visualize what that's going to be about, which is the ever uh, ever ever interesting subject of phase, which is a very difficult thing for people to wrap their heads around, and so there's always lots of discussion. DBSPL, that's uh, that's you know level. Um, so there's that that always strikes me as uh, a potentially no fun conversation. Lots of, <laughs> lots of chest beating about who's who's got the biggest SPL. Uh, on their meter, uh, Wave RX. Uh, that looks like fun. The uh, the prescription for uh, uh, medicine and things for 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 fixing your waveform. I, I like that idea. The two that made me laugh the first time I heard them were all your waves and midwave. Unfortunately, I think all your waves might be lost on most people. It's sort of a cultural reference, like a joke about another joke. So it's. It's maybe not not enough people would get the joke. Um, midwave is a joke I think you would get if you were a native English speaker and you would because I was thinking of being a midwife to sound waves. Oh, okay. But those are kind of just clever. Um, but my favorites are XOVR for crossover and Wave RX because I like the idea of a wave prescription or a wave doctor. Um, and I also mm -hmm. found out that RX can mean transmission receive or transceiver. Oh, really? Okay. All right. So I think it's going to be one of those last two. So let's, we'll move on and then we'll come back to that in the end and make a decision. All right. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, Pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. All right, well, let's take a look at some of these designs. Um, I want to give people some ideas for how to handle their designs in these small rooms because I know that there are creative options, but mainly I want to get a peek into your decision-making process, someone who works on these problems every day. Um, so we want to look at what are the biggest problems here that when solved will give us the greatest returns. And for those of you who are familiar uh, with Bob's work, know that we are often looking for even coverage and minimum variance. And so I think that's what we're going to be looking for in most of these designs, except for the last one, which um, is for theater and maybe is a special case. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay. So the first one is from Goran O in Croatia, and he has a couple of questions before we look at his design. His first question is, what's the approach in sound design for venues with bad acoustics that are very reverberant? 
I have mixed in these places and I must say that I'm trying hard to forget the feeling. It is very often the case that the owner of the club has spent money buying a decent sound reinforcement system but then doesn't care about acoustics. Or there are cases when a concert is produced in some kind of multi-purpose venue, which is normally a warehouse, and you are expected to create great sound. Would it help to try a more distributive approach? Bad acoustics for your environment, of course, is always, always a problem. You're in a defensive position to start with. Uh, so what you're doing now is trying to get the sound over the sound of the band and into the ears of the audience with this, this big crippling disadvantage. And of course, when we talk about bad acoustics, we don't have to think, well, does it mean that it's too dead or does it mean that it's too reverberant? We all know what it means. It means that there's too many reflections. It can mean either a, a way too much of a uh, long-term reverberation or it can mean specific surfaces uh, in really bad places that create particularly bothersome, bothersome reflections, reflections. And <laughs> where this all leads to is that in the world of clubs and these kind of places where the owners have, have spent their last dollar just to get a decent PA, the cost of uh, doing an acoustical renovation is, is huge. And you need expertise and a consultant. And the consultant may or may not understand what, what, the, what the needs are for a small space with a loud PA. It's a very, very different situation than the needs of uh, acoustics for for a chamber orchestra or for the kind of things that acousticians fall in love with that field to do. I think, you know, the bottom line is nobody goes into acoustics because they think I'm going to get really good at putting fiberglass on the walls to make dead rooms. Mm -hmm. But in the world of small spaces that are going to do loud music, that's exactly what you need. Uh, those rooms are not about finding all the right reflections to make them all sweet and happy. That's a different kind of space. When you want to do loud music in a closed space, uh, you really need to err on the side of 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 drying up the room as much as possible, and you've got to take away those uh, that really nice. Uh, glass and steel look that you think looks so great on your interior design. Industrial. Exactly. All of these kind of things are going to just come back to bite you and to turn turn that the sound of a of a tight, fast, boom, 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 boom uh, beat into just nothing but a a roar. And there's nothing the sound engineer can do. There is just is just it's lost. The battle is lost before it's even begun. So I completely sympathize with uh, Goran's uh, point. He's totally right on, and it's a, it's a serious problem. And the solutions are not simple, and they cost money, and nobody wants to hear about them because they don't, they, don't, they don't exactly look great either. And so this distributive approach that he talks about, um, I've, I've tried to do this too, and I see other people try to do this. I think it can help, but it's, it's not really the solution. So you put... What he's talking about is you put more speakers around the room so that it can be quieter and you're basically getting sound as much as possible directly into people's ears without 
um, bouncing off the walls too much before it gets to you. So it, you know, there's a million ways that that can work, but that's, it's absolutely correct. And that is the way that we handle over overly reverberant spaces is, is the divide and conquer type of approach. But what you have now is a, uh, Every time that you divide things up, you up the requirement to do this carefully. Uh, if it's you've got one or two sources, uh, you there's only so many things you can do in terms of their interaction with the space. But as soon as you go up to four four sources or eight sources or sixteen sources, now you've got all of these interactions and timings and relative levels and overlapping aims, and that's where the the having the time and the the you know a really careful design will pay off. But if it's not well designed and you don't have enough time to show it all together, then you've just created your own new uh, ten-headed hydra that's going to create its own problems. Mm, so you might be creating more problems than you are solving, or 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 a disappointingly uh, less solution than you might hope. You know, you know, maybe you've solved some, but not as you haven't solved it all, because you, you know, it's a, a case of that old Tonstoffel principle. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Let's go ahead and take a look at Goron's room here, because without getting into too many of the details, I think one of the biggest problems is that we noticed that one of the walls is covered with mirrors. So the first thing I did was email him back and say, "Hey, is there any chance you can get those covered up with something?" And he said it's a possibility. So do you also feel like that's one of the biggest problems with that room? That's certainly uh, an issue for that room. And these are the things that, that come to me right away in looking at that room is that it's a completely asymmetric space. Okay, it's, there's one side that is in one planet and there's another side that's in another planet. So you first thing you have to do is abandon a sound design approach that is so ingrained in our brain, which is that we think about left and right speakers and we think about making those the same. Well, you don't make those the same when you have a space that is completely not the same. Um, so looking at it you have a two-story structure on one side that has that's that's outside of the speaker that we need to cover we've got people below we got people above and on the other side you've got um you've got no audience at all all the audience is on the inside of the speaker so it's like half of the you, you, half of the of the one side is got no coverage and half of the other side has coverage and they both have the same thing on the inside. So first thing I'm seeing is you've got to aim the speaker that's on the mirror side into the room and you've got to aim the speaker that's on the other side off of the center of the room. So it's sort of like the whole thing just shifts to um, house. Uh, if you're looking out in the house, all this, the speakers aim uh, much more, uh, that would be rightward mm -hmm. of, of where they originally, you know, of that same, of our typical orientation, which is we want to try to make things go straight forward. 
So the second question is, what about using the Haas or precedence effect in sound distribution? Bob says that delaying sound systems further than the first arrival of direct sound will mess with the phase, but what about spatial feeling or this psychoacoustic effect that even the arrival of the delayed sound is 8 dB, for example, higher than the direct sound? Your brain says that the sound source is from where the direct sound source is placed. Okay, that's a little confusing, a little bit long, but I think we've all heard this idea that if you play around with the delay times of your under balconies or your, your delay speakers, you can adjust um, where people, uh, where the location of the sound sounds like it's coming from. If you want it to come more from the stage or more from somewhere else. And I don't, I don't really like that conversation myself. I feel like if you set it up correctly, set the EQ, set the delay right, set your crossover point correctly, then I, I, it's not even really a real conversation. Um, but I wanted to see if you had anything to say about that, Bob. Um, yeah, I have a few things to say about that. Number one, the Haas effect or precedence effect, whatever you want to call it, is, is vastly oversimplified in people's brains. It's First of all, it takes a it takes a whole set of of circumstances to make those numbers work, and one of the circumstances is, of course, that the sound sources have to be not just matched; uh, they have to be matched in in their frequency response. You can't just where is the eight dB if if you're under a balcony, and where does that 8 dB come from? Because you've got all of this sound coming from the other speaker that's got the high end maybe rolled off and got a bunch of low frequency boost. And then you've got a much flatter response for your under balcony speaker. Uh, the under balcony speaker could be 8 dB quieter at 250 hertz and 8 dB louder at 4 kilohertz. So at the same time. So which is it? So there's a whole lot of things that are in play here that we can't take such a simplistic approach to what was done in a laboratory with a stereo pair of speakers delaying the left or changing the level of the left and making the image move horizontally. The other thing about this is to bear in mind that there are two things in play. There's relative level and there's relative time or relative phase. And only in the horizontal plane are both those factors in play because vertically we don't have anything that localizes by time in in the vertical plane because we didn't get the quad upgrade. None of us have ears on the top <laughs> of our head or on our chin. So it's this differential analyzer that tells relative phase and relative to relative level. And in the vertical plane, it's relative level that's the king because the localization is based on a memorized... Uh, comb filter signature that's the reflections off of your uh, outer ear, the pinna. So level is king in vertical and level is, is also uh, half of the game in the horizontal. So if you can manage the level part of things, you win most of the time. And the, trying to win by playing with the time part is a very, um, shall we say, uh, a very fleeting kind of set of victories because the timing only holds up for a very few seats. Um, and so you end up with uh, some pretty disappointing results. In the end, what I see people do over and over again is they set their delays up and they 
they don't really think about the level and then they start adding in time. And before it's all over, they've ended up turning those delay speakers up louder than they would have if they would have just set them to the correct time to start with. Mm -hmm. Goran's Room is a student club where bands play. Uh, capacity is 300 to 400 people. It has a balcony and an under-balcony space. And Goran says, it would be great to have Bob's opinion on how to distribute the speakers because this venue is part of the Faculty of Electrical Engineering and Computing and some students in the club are studying at the Department of Electroacoustics, so they are hungry for knowledge, as I am. Um, so I think we've identified the two biggest problems so far, which is that uh, the acoustics of the room, one wall is full of mirrors, and secondly, that it, the room is asymmetrical. So the, you can't have a traditional sound system set up and some speakers will need to get moved around. Um, what else do you want to say about that, Bob? Well, looking at um, his space there, um, you have a, an overspace and an underspace on, on the, um, the house right side. So you, if you want to be able to get to those booths on the lower side and to get to the uh, standing area on the and sitting area on the upper side, you really have these two separate spaces. Just because you have two floors doesn't mean you necessarily always have two separate spaces. But when you're in such a small place as this, from an angular point of view, you've got the plane, uh, the listening plane where the heads are on the lower floor and the listening plane where the heads are on the upper floor. And there's a huge gap uh, angle-wise between them. So if you try to hit those with a single speaker, you're essentially trying, you're, you're, you're going to be lighting up a unoccupied area over the heads of the lower floor and on the shoe tops uh, of the people in the upper floor. So the first thing that shows to me is you want a separate speaker angled out, hitting above, nice and narrow in the vertical, and you want a, another speaker uh, placed lower where it can get a, a shot skimming across the booths on the lower side. Yeah, it's, it's that, always that, that essential question of which is better to go with one uh, speaker to try to, you know, do the old uh, congealed point source, uh, concentrated, coupled up, or do you separate things out? This thing calls for separation uh, when you have that much of, a, of an angular spacing. He would probably be unhappy if we didn't mention the subs, even though um, that's not one of the major issues in this room. But right now he has them, he calls it a left-right stack. And I just suggested that he move them together, make them coupled, and uh, wanted to see if you agreed about that. In a small room like this, there's an there's advantage to bringing them together you don't need them separated out to um, to widen the coverage and bringing them together will um, help actually to um, narrow the coverage without having um, the center nose and the and the big holes that fall on either side of that center so it's there's a there's a it's a practical trade-off this is a classic Tonstoffel though um, and I remember discussing this before. It's if you're going to fly them and you're going to put them right over center, that creates a great um, great advantage in terms of the coupling and a great disadvantage in terms of uh, you can end up with too much proximity to the mics and end up with 
uh, game before feedback issues. It's kind of one of those, you get more comb filtering in the house if you spread them apart, but you might get more um, gain on the stage. If you are not at all, uh, if you're keeping your system so that you're really well isolated, so that you're not putting uh, your frontline mics at all into the subs, then you might be able to get away with that. So, so it's kind of very situation dependent. Uh, it's a real give and get kind of situation. But in a general rule, if we can get away with it, it's it's really better to resign your subs to a to a mono uh, configuration and be mindful of not making it um, too overly narrow and um, get yourself away from that uh, left-right with its big power alley center followed by frequency variable holes mm -hmm. uh, as you move off to the center. Another thing, oh, I should also mention, for those of you who have never read Bob McCarthy's material, uh, Tonstoffel stands for there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. means that you can't... Oh, why don't you explain it? <laughs> well, it actually comes from um, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by... Um, Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein, and it's basically the principle of that if you think you're going to get something for free, you're not. Uh, you have to give up something to ever get something. So everything is always an exchange and a trade-off. And so for the positive parts that you get in separating the subwoofers, there are negative uh, aspects to that as well. And those are the, the things in play there. Or you said if you have the rigging available, you could even put those subs up above the stage. And if you wanted to create a cardioid sub, you could even put one behind the other and um, invert the phase. So do you want to just explain that again? Um, one way to get, a, to get a single clean lobe of coverage and to, to minimize the leakage onto the stage is to um, put them uh, one, one in front of the other um, typically by uh, a meter front to front, and then you um, delay the rear subwoofer and polarity reverse it. The amount of delay you put on is basically the, the uh, uh, speed of sound coming back and wrapping around so that you make them in time in the back and then reverse the polarity so that it, it makes a cancellation uh, node to the rear of, of the system. And that will cancel very sharply down on the um, stage, but it will um, mostly be in phase in the front. It's a little tricky in front. It's not perfectly in phase. It's actually 360 degrees out um, in the forward direction. Um, and not at all, not uniformly over frequency. So when you do play with uh, cardio and so forth, it's generally is a good rule to to uh, minimize the range. You might want to roll them out um, at at 90 or 80 hertz and um, limit their range. But that's a that's a great little little technique. And it's a Tonstoffel. You you are losing some of the tightness of the base because you're stretching at 360 degrees. But you um you might be able to get a 15 or 20 dB reduction in terms of stage leakage, which means that energy is not going into your mics. And that's, of course, going to tighten the bass uh, by not having delayed 
energy coming into the mic. So it's a perfect example of Tom Stoffel. Uh, you give up something to get something. I don't remember who wrote it. Maybe it was you, but someone wrote an article that I read a couple of years ago where they actually tested these cardioid setups to see how much energy they were losing in the front um, because of the imperfect addition that's happening. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't that much, basically, was the conclusion was you do lose a little bit, but it's not very significant. Well, different configurations have different efficiencies. The end fire configuration um, is is a leapfrog game where the where the alignment is done to make the subwoofers in phase in the front and a random phase interaction in the back. That takes at least three um, and is, functions much better with four and five elements. So it's you're talking about something that's three to four to five meters deep in terms of its physical size and a, and, a, and a series of speakers. So it's not terribly practical uh, in many applications, but that is the most efficient because everything is still in phase in the front. Then the other um, systems are done as a reversal of that. It's um, instead of order on the front side and chaos on the back, it's, it's ordered cancellation on the back side and uh, somewhat chaotic on the front. And that somewhat chaotic means you get some loss of efficiency. To put it in real numbers, that number, that array that I just described with two boxes would give you 60 dB of addition in the front if you just put them right next to each other going forward. But you only get 40 dB of addition when you do it in the cardioid. But on the back side, instead of it being three or four dB down behind the speaker, it's more like 15 or 20 dB behind. Okay, so you you gain 15 or 20 dB of rejection um, at the price of losing uh, uh, two dB of possible usable in the front. Now, we could do a whole show about subwoofer setups and especially cardioid subwoofer setups, which I think are really interesting. But for now, do you want to point people to a chapter in your book or um, a post on your website where they could read about this? Well, there is a chapter dedicated to, to subwoofer steering in the book. It's called Cancellation. Um, and it's sort of the inverse of the combination chapter where you are basically funneling the, the additive side. Subwoofer steering is really all about uh, also channeling the, the, the dark side, the cancellation side. So that's chapter, um, I think it might be chapter numerical eight, but you'd find it in the index by just looking up cancellation. And then I did a, um, some blog posts on it that... Uh, also cover that if you just go to uh, bobmccarthy.com you'll you'll find it okay great well I'll link to those when I publish this post as well okay cool we don't cover the mix position very well which is up high and back at the end of the room on the balcony he could supplement that coverage with some near field monitors so that he can really hear what's going on in the mix and then when he wants to he can walk around the room and see what's going on um, I certainly endorse the the near field monitors in combat situations where you are having to essentially mix in a 
remote location. If you can't be in the room and hear what is going on in the room, then you um, you basically need to mix with a with a dual brain, a mix that is that is thinking through the balance of things uh, of the instruments, and then another part that has to run down around the room and see what the tone is on the system um, throughout the room because your little space is likely to have a different tone unless it's well, uh, somebody's really dialed in those monitors and delayed them and made them uh, come up to the same response as, um, as the rest of the system. In a small space like this, then you've got a double challenge and that is the fact that the stage spill is a very significant part of the listening experience and so downstairs, it might, things might not even be balanceable uh, by just the PA alone. You may be balancing against uh, leakage of guitars and things off the stage. So now you've got a double challenge. The, the location where you are upstairs might not have the same spill from the stage. So, oh boy, that's a tough one. Got to get your exercise. <laughs> hey guys, sound system tuning is one of my favorite topics to talk about. That's why I created a free e-course called Intro to Sound System Tuning, which includes topics like how to tune a sound system the wrong way, how to tune a sound system the right way, how to find microphone feedback without a graphic EQ, and how to find speaker coverage and aim angle in one step. So if you're working on building your skills and knowledge in the area of sound system tuning, then head over to sounddesignlive.com and sign up today. Okay, well, let's move on to Simon E. He, has, um, he works with a community theater in Novato, California. And he's working on the sound system design for a rock show with six actors that are close mic'd with wireless and a band with piano, bass, drums, violin, and sampler that will be on the, in the stage right wing. Uh, so his question, he says, I really wanted to fly the speakers over the stage, but in this space it's not going to happen because uh, they lack the roof infrastructure. So I'm resigned to two speakers on tall stands at the sides, angled in and tilted down in an attempt to get an even coverage. Based on the basic rule from Bob of the back row being on axis and the front row being at the edge of coverage, I think it's close enough. In this case, with 90 by 60 degree speakers, it works out to about nine feet up, 15 degrees down, and about 25 to 30 degrees in to avoid the hard sidewalls. Then he goes on to talk about speakers he might use, but I think we have the basic information here. So what kind of problems do you see with this design so far? With the limitations that he's got and not being able to fly the PA and having um, a small budget in terms of a small number of locations and sources, it looks to me like his approach is very good. It totally makes sense to me. The thing I note on this the pictogram that I see here is that the audience uh, seating area uh, doesn't fill the space. There on the horizontal plane, he's got open areas. It looks like uh, to the to the outside of the seating. So um, the the thing that stands out for me is that the horse, the vertical aim 
strategy sounds perfectly, uh, that's exactly how I would approach it. On the horizontal, I'm not sure whether 25 degrees or 30 degrees is correct, but I would give you this little guideline of how I would approach it because I don't know exactly where the speakers are in the horizontal plane. But if you, basically what you want to do is divide the space so that the left speaker covers the left side primarily and the right covers the right side. So if we cut the room in half and you then cut the room in half front to depth, we've got five rows deep. So you look at the third row and count the number of seats and they are from the center, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So I've um, and I've counted two seats as the open aisle because we can't really pretend that those we're not going to be so precise with our aiming that we're going to skip that. Mm -hmm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It looks like 11 seats. So basically, if you did half the horizontal plane and half the, the depth plane, then the third row, five and a half seats off center, is where you would want to aim your horizontal. And that would be sort of the target. It's the, the basic philosophy of split the baby the middle of the middle. Um, and um, that way, you, the overflow that you have potentially on a wall is no worse than the overflow that you have as a certainty into the um, other speaker that's coming from the other side. So we know for sure at the center line, left meets right in time. And if we put the speakers in too deeply, then we will encroach too much left into the right um, and vice versa. So I'm always wary of, of the steering excessively away from the real walls and into the virtual wall that comes uh, from crossing over the speakers. And if you take that middle-middle approach, you're, you're partitioning the system so that it has the same amount of, of these two challenges uh, evened out over the room. Now, let me ask you this. What if he is able to get some front fills for this design to cover that first row? Will that change the speaker aim at all? Um, yeah, that has a little effect. Um, not, not so much, um, but you could make you think about the... Well, actually, front fills don't change the calculus because the, the speakers still have to run over that distance. They still have to run the distance. If you look at the distance from the from where the speakers are to the last row, mm -hmm. cut that in half, that's what it is. But let's just go the other direction. Let's say that you had delays. This, of course, this room, it would be ridiculous, but let's just pretend you did <laughs> okay. and covered the last two rows with delays. Now your coverage is only the first three rows. And so you re, you relook at the shape now as the middle of the depth is recalculated to, um, to a shorter distance. So if I had 28 rows in a, in a hall and the last seven were covered by, um, exclusively by the delays, then I'm looking at 21 rows um, of exclusive and I'd call a, you know, a couple of rows further would be where the handoff is occurring. So I might approach that as a 22 or 24 row deep space. So the 12th, 12th row becomes the middle point rather than the uh, 14th row as would be if you looked at the entire space of 28 rows without 
without assistance. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, let's move on. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about that design? Um, that's really it. Um, uh, that it's pretty straightforward. It's always a shame when you can't. Uh, but he, if he can get nine feet out of uh, out of his speaker sticks, that's great. And nine feet and and uh, a fifteen degree down tilt is a bit of a gravitational challenge. But if he's got a, a yoke up there on a on a stand and it doesn't tip over, he's good to go. So let's take a look at this design from Mark In. He says, I'm in the process of redoing a PA in a 650-seat worship room and have been trying to find the best placement for subs and mains. The stage is in one corner with mains directly above the steps, currently aiming at each aisle. The center one has moved slightly off center and the crossover between the mains is in the middle of seats. I have stressed the concern of rearranging the seats so the crossover is in the aisles. I can rehang ring position and the speakers can be visible. My thought was to flip the mains over so the horn is at the bottom to get past the projectors. Evie, the speaker manufacturer, has, been, um, has seen the room and suggested that too. Uh, so let's take a look at his design. What are the first, what are the biggest problems you see with this design so far? Well, um I would focus on a couple of things that uh, that he's already stated. I completely endorse the horns down um, in this case. I'm always endorsed the horn position that has the fewest obstructions. Um, so if if horns down gives you a better line of sound without uh, hitting lights uh, or projection screens, or whatever, definitely go with that. Um, what stru- what stands out to me is that the the placement of the speakers um, is in sort of a world between coupled array and uncoupled array. He's close enough that he's going to be coupled together at the uh, through about half the speaker's range, and then he's going to kind of uncouple as we go down lower. The, I would advocate to either bring the speakers closer together um, and get the full benefits of coupling or get those speakers spaced further apart and get the full benefits of uncoupling. And the reason that, I'm, that I see this is that you look at that spacing and it's really evident um, in that close-up picture. Um, the 1K and 500 and 250 hertz range, the wavelengths are too... Uh, small to to do well at that spacing. You're going to definitely have um, serious fingers and lobes in those ranges. Um, if we brought them together, you could uh, reduce that some, or if you pull them apart, then you'll at least be able to beat the game that you're losing by time with some isolation by amplitude. I'd love to see either the, the, the backs come together to where they, they touch or to pull the outer speakers off the frame. Which one is better? Well, that's going to depend on, on which has a more favorable angular geometry into the room. And I'm, I'm a little bit unable to, to assess that with certainty because of the, the fisheye lens in the picture. So I can't tell... Um, Here's where I would evaluate it. If you have to angle them out really hard and you're hitting against walls and projection screens, then you might be better off moving them out and be able to take an angle that 
is going to spill less into the projection screens and, and walls. So um, I always look at that on, on worship spaces, especially that have fan-shaped rooms. And fan-shaped rooms in general, you're always grappling with that. Do I keep them all together and fan them out or do I separate them out? And one of the key elements is the placement of your speaker's podium. If that is right underneath, uh, you're going to group a whole lot of speakers in the center and uh, then angle them out. You might find yourself with a serious uh, downlobe issue onto the podium, a downlobe that you can break up much better with uh, separating and getting a more um, straight set of angles. In the ideal world of a radial room, you get yourself to be fairly close to that the, that the speakers are spread on a similar radius to the radial shape of the room. And if they are brought in close and you're, you're fanning them out hard, you've sort of got two different circles that don't line up well. Because um, the, the speakers will create one radial shape and the room is a different radial shape. As we explode them out, you can more closely approximate uh, the radial the radial radiation of the system now more closely approximate the radial radiation or the radial shape of the room. The advantage then of having all the speakers together, I see that as uh, it's a lot easier to create an even shape and everything arrives in time. Whereas with their fanned out, um, you can match the shape of the room better, but then things at your crossover won't necessarily arrive in time. Am I saying some of those things correctly? Or um, can we explain that a little bit better for people who might be new to these ideas? Your explanation is good, and I can supplement that with the following. You look at those speakers, and you have to remember those speakers are covering from 60 hertz to, um, to 18 kilohertz at least. So that's a 300 to 1 range of frequencies, which means that the, the size of the wavelengths and the timing involved has a 301 scalar factor. So in other words, they are 300 times closer to each other from a phase point of view at 60 hertz than they are at 18 kilohertz. Well, we save ourselves up at the high end by having a directional horn that says, I'm going to go over here and even though another horn will send 18 kilohertz over there and late, it's too bad because its own horn makes it so that it's 20 dB down by the time it gets there and neener, neener, rat, rat, I'm too strong. <laughs> you can't cancel me. Okay? But 250 hertz is not directional enough on the individual cabinets, so it's being shared level-wise between the between all three boxes. And now at every any given location, they've got three 250 hertz arrivals. And all you need to do is be uh, a little more than uh, one millisecond apart. And that means uh, a little more than a foot apart in your arrivals. And you're going to start finding uh, an unhappy marriage between those. And by the time you're two milliseconds apart, 250 hertz is in a full cancellation, which is where you're going to get a, a uh, hole in the response. And so you're going to see then that 250 hertz has got um, addition, then it's got a hole, then it's got 
another edition where you are four milliseconds apart because it's back on the back end phase now. It says, oh, okay, cool, let's, let's add together. And then at, at six milliseconds, they are out again. It's that uh, on-again, off-again relationship that is the, the trouble. These are some of the challenges that make sound system design so challenging and also so interesting. Um, anytime you have multiple sources that are not right next to each other and not directional, which is what happens with any speaker that gets down into uh, any low range, then you start having problems with phase alignment. That's what Mark needs to be thinking about when he decides whether or not to explode this out or put them together. It's great that he has the option and the flexibility uh, there that they're not playing the hide the speaker game um, and they're telling him that he has the liberty to optimize the spacing because really at the end of the day, the most important uh, decision post what speakers do we have is where can we put the speakers? Location, location, location. So once we know these are the speakers you got, this the quantity you got, the, the biggest... Uh, optimization decision from there is where you're going to place them and where you're going to aim them. And so it's great that he's got that flexibility. The other thing that I noticed on this picture is he's got that uh, that little closet uh, full of seats behind uh, oh, yeah, on, the one, on the one side. And so, so obviously that's a completely asymmetric uh, situation. I'm I'm figuring he's got that covered with uh, some kind of uh, delay speakers. Uh, if not, um, now you've got yourself a real challenge of you need a different vertical aim angle to try to get your mains under there on one side, uh, whereas the mains are going to be angled down more steeply on the opposite side and try to stay off of the wall. Okay, so the last couple of questions come from Thurston B. in Germany, and he says, when is the next update to SIM 3 coming out? It's been a while. Um, yes, November. Um, I just won't say what, what year in November, but it's... <laughs> um, but uh, I can just tell you that there are developments currently. We've got a whole team of digital people working on a whole digital lot of Digital people? Digital people, yeah, they are. They walk around with ones and zeros. Uh, uh, in any case, we have a, we have a team of um, uh, digital product management that's doing a lot of exciting things, and uh, sim development is one of the things that's going on there. And I can only say that that's all I can say. Okay. Um, his second question, I have the theory that if I use the same model of microphone on every input and the same model of loudspeaker on every output, the sound will be more even and smooth because in the interaction between microphone and speaker, there is only one frequency response instead of 12 or more if I use the typical four to six types of microphones and speakers. Do you agree, does this work in the real world? Um, this is a... This is a, a, a brings back old memories uh, question. When I worked with my first touring company, Shoko, um, they had a philosophy of use one single microphone for everything. It was the sure 
5.45, which was a, basically a $12 version of the SM57. Oh, wow. Um, and if you, so if you look at it, uh, get an old photo or, of Led Zeppelin back in 1973 or uh, four or five, you're going to see this microphone uh, all over the stage. So their philosophy was that the, by, by reducing the microphone count, they could improve consistency over the mixer um, and um, minimize that piece of the interaction. It didn't take long for that philosophy to, to fall out of favor uh, because the, the microphones did so poorly on finding the response of certain instruments, most notably the cymbals, uh, which the thing, these are old dynamic microphones, which couldn't do, couldn't get a good response there. Mm -hmm. They were overpressurized when faced uh, inside of a kick drum, all of these kind of uh, situations. So we found that the isolation that you get uh, with a, with a proper microphone placement and a directional mic is a better way to get um, sound closer into the, the, to get the, the response that you want in the pipeline that requires the least amount of, of manipulation. We, you know, you use, use the wrong mic, use a dynamic mic on your cymbals and you're going to find yourself using more EQ than you would with an unmatched mic. Why? Because you're going to have to boost up uh, 16K by 20 dB and cut everything else out mm. to try to make it into a, a condenser mic, which it's not. So that on that end of things, we really find that isolation uh, and, um, and placement and um, the optimized type of uh, play, uh, relationships are good. Those, um, those uh, ribbon mics do very well on guitars uh, because you can place them so that you get the, 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 the figure eight side that works right into the speaker to work well. Um, uh, those those would be sort of the thing there. Now let's talk about on the on the speaker side. Reduce your your models there, and in a lot of ways it comes to the same kind of questions and answers in reverse. Certainly, for a main system to have uh, a lot of similar components is a, a great thing for uniformity, and that main system has, is charged with covering that that biggest single part of the of the coverage, the biggest, most unified section. But when you look at what uh, the other areas are going to cover, you're back to a, a specialty speakers the same way as that we wanted specialty mics to record particular channels of the audio. So the front fills really don't want to be the same model of mic, uh, speaker as, uh, as, as your mains. And, um, and the side fills don't have to be the same as your mains if they're doing a, uh, a much shorter range or a uh, or a much different shape. I'm always looking at shape and scale when I make my microphone or my my speaker choices, and um, if things have to create uh, different shapes, then they would want to be a different uh, model of speaker. And if they have different scales, they might be a uh, same. Uh, they may make the same picture, but they may be a different p 
power uh, scaling, so it becomes a different um, speaker model that's more appropriately scaled to those distances or that kind of um, level of SPL delivery. And one major difference I can think of is that I remember you once saying that Meyer Sound speakers are all manufactured to work together harmoniously without, without you having to do much. You can put them all in the same system and they should work well together. Now, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that about microphones, so I don't think the same, they're looking for the same, they're purposing in, in the same way. That is certainly true, that speakers and speaker manufacturers have to look at, they, they know that they're going to partition the, the coverage spectrally and spatially. So they have to make their subwoofers so that they work to make a nice handoff to their main systems. And in a two-way box, you have to make sure that the low makes a nice handoff to the high driver. And then in terms of, um, we know that, that different models of speakers are going to be required to do these different areas. So you have to create a standardized spectrum uh, and a standardized phase response so that when I add the front fills, they don't just add at one frequency range and subtract at others, but they actually uh, lay over each other in phase over frequency. That's an immensely uh, big challenge as a manufacturer to, to keep moving forward in your manufacturing and keep backwards compatibility with the phase response. Uh, over families of speakers that are very different in size and very different in directional control, um, and so it's something that uh, has to be has to be really carefully monitored in the design. Microphones, on the other hand, really live this solitary existence, and everybody is just trying to make the best microphone, and without even really thinking about their compatibility. Uh, especially phase compatibility with other mics because they assume that things are going to go into the system from different locations, entering at different times, and therefore the phase is going to randomize itself in your console Mm -hmm. and other places anyway. But in the world on the output side, we can't assume random phase. We're the ones that are supposed to keep this thing uh, in order. it's It's just a different end of the chain. One summer I toured with... um a sound company that only worked with symphonies outdoor. And there was one kind of Sheps microphone that all these symphonies like to use. And this company in particular just carried a lot of those. And those pretty much went on all the strings. Not on the vocals and maybe not in percussion, but pretty much every string section had the same microphone. So I think that does exist in some spaces, but I can't, I can't really, I still can't really answer the question, even though I have worked in those situations. So in the world of classical, the mixing is really should be done by the, by the conductor. And our role is now to stand back far enough to let the mics be where the, the pieces of the mix are largely already pre-assembled for us and then you move them on. And in that case, you uniformity of uh, mic model is a really uh, a good idea there and it's, it, that should be the default starting point um, because those mics are going to be cross-pollinating a lot of, uh, there's a lot, of sh- a lot more shared material between those mics than there is when you place mics close in on a, on a rock and roll band. 
Well, in that case, maybe we can think about it more like an array of speakers than it's like an array of microphones, and they might be uncoupled and far apart, um, but then then there are more similarities. Totally, totally correct. It is more like an array, and your approach is um, is is much more like looking at covering areas instead of of making uh, a, a specific pinpoint microscopic surgical strike that a microphone that's placed right on a uh, on a one drum or right on uh, one guitar speaker is attempting to do. So Bob, we've gotten pretty specific into a few designs here. Do you think you could just sum up what are some of the major difficulties you see in doing system design for these small rooms? System design for small rooms is, in my mind, much more challenging and difficult than uh, large spaces. The acoustical challenges are, are really difficult because the interactions are so immediate um, and so um, you know, a little bit of, ref- of reflective surfaces can cause a lot of damage uh, in a small room. It's, everything is so um, immediate. The other thing that's really a tremendous challenge in the small room is the leakage from the stage. Um, a, loud, a, loud, uh, a couple of loud instruments can do so much unbalancing of what's required from the PA. And it'd be one thing if you can simplify things and say, well, I got enough guitar off stage, so I don't need much of it in the PA. But the problem with that is the guitar amps tend to be extremely directional, especially in the high frequencies. Uh, and so that you end up with a, a, when you leave the guitar out because it's too loud on the stage, it's only left out for certain people. And other people are just like, well, you know, why does the guitar sound so dark in the mix? Well, it's because all the high end is beaming down to these 17 seats. So the, the economics are always challenging in small rooms because uh, you, you tend to be running on, on poor locations and poor budgets. Um, and you have the competition of uh, the already too loud off the stage so that you can't even mix where you really want the mix to be because you're trying to get the vocal up over the sound of some other instruments. That can be tough. So my hat goes off to, uh, uh, to people working in small spaces. I think they have a really tough job and they deserve uh, a lot of credit, uh, although they don't get much thanks, uh, I think, in small spaces. But they're really, really challenging. It's a funny thing. I do seminars a lot of times in small spaces because that's what's available to rent. And I will look at traces that I see on my uh, SIM analyzer, and especially of the low end, they're so terrible. They're worse than anything I see out in arenas, uh, because because think about it that the, that these these rooms with these ten foot ceilings and these parallel walls, all made of just flat drywall or or worse, um, are just bringing back all of these reflections so close in time as a function of wavelength to the to the direct sound. 
way too strong and way too uh, soon, and it just tears the low-end response into, into shreds. And I always laugh it off and say, well, you know, I, I can't show you a, a good low end, but you'll know one when you see one. <laughs> um, but out there in these small rooms, that's a lot of times the real environment that they're working in. And uh, it's tough. Uh, my typical strategy is just to make everything as loud as possible. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, no, anyone who's worked in these small rooms knows that you're not really mixing. Most of the time you are doing sound reinforcement and that means adding into the sound system whatever it is you can't hear in the room to, to sort of, you are mixing with the acoustical energy coming off of the stage. So you might not need a snare drum in the room because it's already super loud and you might need the high end from the bass but not the low end because there's already plenty of it blasting out of the bass player's amp. So... I wrote an article called Nine Proven Methods for Controlling Feedback on Stage last month, and almost the entire article is about isolation. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the biggest issue for those of us who work in small spaces, and um, I'll probably do some more writing on it in the future because it's a big challenge. I, I completely agree. It's a huge challenge. And when we, when we have these bands out on the arena level with the uh, that are doing their monitors in an in-ear situation. They've got the sequestered amp backstage. I mean, these are these are super controlled situations. It's just an amazing thing. You mute the PA and there's like no sound, <laughs> um, and it's quite it's quite an amazing thing. And and um, that level of of isolation is really was always been just the the world of studios before that we we have a lot of that available now in in live music and that's great for us from a from a control point of view uh, and if the musicians can still play like they really are on stage together then artistically the whole thing works but uh, is it can be a bit uh, it can be a bit sterile um, artistically if uh, if everybody's just on the, in their little in-ear worlds. And, um, but that's just a that's a that's a non-scientific uh, piece of uh, my own opinion there. So if you want to follow Bob McCarthy's work, you can go to bobmccarthy.com. The best way to meet with him is to go to his seminars, and you can find those by going to myersound.com. Bob, thanks so much for being here. Thank you much for having me. Best of luck to you. Sound design. Oh, fuck. I remember what we forgot to do. So there was that community hashtag thing that we talked about uh, that we right. finished up in the end. Okay, so let's just go back to that real quick. It'll just take a couple of minutes. Um, okay. So I think we were trying to decide between hashtag XOVR and hashtag WaveRx. Mm-hmm. Is there one of those that you prefer? Um, I I kind of like the the XOVR. Um, the Wave RX links a little too much towards um, towards Walgreens and Dwayne Reed for my comfort level. Okay. <laughs> um, and um, the I like the the XOVR because that's sort of the that's that's this one key place that we always know we have to work with personally in our systems. Uh, the, you know, how am I going to 
merge the subwoofers with the mains? How am I going to merge the side fill with the mains? How am I going to merge the, uh, those delays? We all know that those are, the little, are these little detail points that we've got to use to link the system together. So I think that's a good place for linking people together is the same places that we link our sound systems together. All right, well, I want people to try this. So if you are tweeting or blogging or updating about any of these issues that we covered today, working on your sound systems, uh, working on mixing bands, and you are one of these people out there fighting the good fight, use hashtag XOVR and I will find you. No, that's not a good way to say it. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> Uh, use hashtag XOVR and I'll be monitoring it and other people will too and we can try to form a community around it. Awesome. Hey, 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 this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it, rate it. on iTunes or send it to a friend. That's that's coconut, the coconut. crazy, the crazy papillon who yells at everything that makes sound. Welcome. Best thing is she, she's a litter box trained dog. Is the best thing. Really? Yep. So that means you don't have to go out six o'clock in the morning in the snow. Uh, I think we should probably talk about that instead of all this sound design stuff. Exactly. I mean, that, that will be more helpful to more people in the world. Directly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah than anything else we're going to talk about today. Sound design. Yeah.